Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. It's Legal Roundtable Day, and we'll be spending part of our time looking at the legal ramifications surrounding Missouri Governor Eric Greitens' admitted adulterous affair. There are potential criminal charges. We'll also discuss continued legal fallout from the shooting death of Michael Brown and the lawsuit against the Rams because of their move to Los Angeles is moving forward. Joining me in studio are Bill Freivogel, professor of journalism at SIU in Carbondale. Mark Smith is associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. And joining us once again is Peter Joy, the Henry Hitchcock professor of law at Washington University. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Happy New Year. Haven't mm-hmm. seen you since the, the old year. <laughs> good, good to have you with us. Peter, I'll start with you. You were quoted in the Post-Dispatch story on the Greitens uh, affair uh, this morning. What do you think the chances of prosecution uh, of uh, Governor Greitens would be? Uh, Well, based on what we know at this point, unless the woman that he had the affair with comes forward, uh, there's a zero chance of prosecution. Um, Because without her cooperation, based on on what we have heard, there's a lot of speculation but not a lot of hard facts. Could the tapes that – portions of which most of us have heard – could the tapes be considered probable cause in any sense of the words? The tapes alone, I don't think so, uh, because they're, first of all, it's just hearsay. And for probable cause, you can use hearsay. Uh, but we don't know whether what she said happened, actually happened. The uh, Without her verifying it in some way, uh, even though a prosecutor, in theory, might say we have probable cause. They know they could never take the case to trial without her cooperation. So ethically, a prosecutor would be restrained in starting a prosecution when they don't have any viable theory to take it to trial. Bill Freivogel, it seems like Kim Gardner, the, the circuit attorney's hands are tied then. Well, yes. I, I mean, she. I guess she can, she could subpoena the woman. Uh, that's not the best of I mean, uh, Joel Courier's story in, in the paper this morning sort of uh, quoted uh, uh, a lawyer saying it was a little bit like a domestic abuse victim. You know, if the victim is not really wanting to cooperate, it's difficult. But I, I think that uh, I think that Kim Gardner could subpoena her in an attempt to get cooperation. I mean, if she cooperates, then it's an entirely different situation. But she can't be compelled or, or she, can she? I, I guess she could be comp- she she would have to uh, appear. She could take the Fifth Amendment if she has some sort of uh, in, you know if there's some sort of uh, criminal uh, uh, conduct that she thinks she could have been involved in. But uh, I, I believe that she could be required to appear before a grand jury if there were one. Mark, what's your take on all of this? Well, I agree with what was said, and and you know, Greitens has come out and specifically denied. Um, you know that there was uh, the things that could get him in trouble. He um, he's denied there was violence, there was blackmail. He's denied that he made any kind of payments to quieter. Um, you know the one thing he's kind of sidestepped, and we talked about this, was whether or not he took a photo. Uh, he seems to acknowledge that there was a photo, and so if he takes the photo without her acknowledge acknowledge that could be something. So. I agree. Unless she agrees to cooperate, if she just doesn't want to cooperate, they're not going to go forward. And unless they discover something, um, you know, the campaign funds were allocated to her and that's some kind of cover-up and they didn't re- report it, uh, I don't see how it's going to 
keep going forward. Peter, it would seem to me, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, that there are only two potential charges anyway. One is blackmail, attempted blackmail, and the other is invasion of privacy through a photograph of a of a nude or partially nude woman. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, I mean, it, it unless something would else be what comes we up. know uh, if she was bound and, and gagged uh, and had not consented to it. That would also be assault. So that's you know another potential charge that's that could be out there if he did this against her will. But again, without her cooperating, I, I guess I'd also like to add one thing about the comparison with the, say, a domestic abuse case. Sometimes those cases could go forward without the cooperation of the victim, uh, but that typically involves a person calling up the police and then telling the police what happened in an excited state. That's an excited utterance, which is an exception to hearsay. And also the police then generally have photographs showing you know, the physical abuse that has taken place. But here we don't have excited utterance. We don't have any photograph. Uh, so I, I just don't see – it going forward. Uh, Scott Rosenblum, who's a well-known defense lawyer, told the Post-Dispatch that he thought one potential, if you know, if there were just in a hypothetical situation, that uh, that you could possibly have a case for uh, extortion, uh, you know, if there was cooperation, obviously, on the part of uh, part of the woman, where someone demands silence with a threat of embarrassment, that that could actually fit into. A, into the category of, of extortion. But again, that's just you know, hypothetically speaking. But, you know, he's already – the governor's already admitted to things that are politically incredibly damaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, they tried to say this a long time ago, but, it, you know, it, it, was, it was only a couple of years ago. And, uh, and as Mark said, he has not denied taking a picture of her blindfolded and tied up. Uh, I mean, maybe he will deny that at some point, but he has very explicitly not denied that, uh, in, 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 even in the interview he had with the Associated Press. So, you know, politically, he was being groomed to be to be president. Mm-hmm. He had been uh, the Fox News Sunday News Man of the Week uh, twice last year. He, that's that's not in his future. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's got a lot of Republicans who are. Who he is? He had prior to this, he had alienated, and they're you know they're not big friends. Uh, I, I noticed Mike Wolf uh, was the former uh, you know Supreme Court justice judge in Missouri. Uh, said he didn't. He pointed out that you could the, the House could impeach him without some of these problems of what's admissible in court possibly, but that he doesn't really see there being an appetite to do that. We should point out too that consensual sex is not against the law. It's right. these other things that uh, would be difficult, if not impossible, to prove that uh, yeah. that would be, it may be, would be a problem. immoral, but yeah. it's not illegal. Yeah. That's exactly right. And there's lots of things that are immoral that the law doesn't punish, and and that's just the way it is. And the chances of impeachment, Mark, I would think, would be remote to none yeah. because it's a Republican-controlled. And even though assembly. he seems to have. Um, Antagonized a lot of the Republicans. I don't think they would go that far. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think, barring some other thing that would come out, um, I, I see this. Like Bill said, he's he's wounded. Um, I think the chances for president are, are shot. I don't know if he can get reelected as governor if he wants. I, I wonder what will happen. He's got all this money that's coming into what? What is that? 
group, Better Missouri, or you know his right. his like his dark money dark uh, group. Yeah. yeah. And so one wonders if that will continue to keep coming in or if that's going to dry up. Let's just look at what, Peter, I'll go back to you on this. Uh, Go back uh, to um, the supposed FBI investigation. CNN has reported it. Other news outlets have reported that the FBI is investigating. And didn't a Missouri senator say he had been interviewed by the FBI? Someone did, yes. Uh, um, Greitens' lawyer is saying there has been no contact from the FBI. Does there have to be contact? Can't the FBI investigating without telling the person they're investigating that we are investigating? Uh, yeah, well, actually, most of the time the FBI doesn't contact uh, someone that they believe may have committed some criminal conduct. Uh, but they will investigate potential leads that could bring them on to some evidence. Uh, typically, a target wouldn't be contacted till after they really assembled a case against the person. And then at that point in time, the U.S. Attorney's Office would be involved. Um, For all we know, the U.S. Attorney's Office could be involved if there is a FBI investigation uh, that has gone on. But Bill, wouldn't that be happening under the same constraints that Kim Gardner is facing? Well, yeah. I mean, they would still have the, they would still have the issue of, uh, of how, how do they get this tape to be admissible and it's hearsay and they need somebody to verify that they said it and that the acts occurred and yeah they would they they, they would have uh, they would have similar problems they and they their resources are extensive needless to say but really not so extensive as to be able to overcome these hurdles i would think right Mark. right although you know the the uh, lawyer for the i guess the ex-husband apparently has more tapes and he's i think released some of them um so I mean, I keep waiting to see if another shoe is going to drop. I mean, this was definitely a bombshell, but I don't think, like we've said, nothing that legally probably um, could be used in a criminal prosecution. But if there's all this other stuff out there, one wonders what else might happen. There is also an awful lot of rumor out there. I mean, we have to admit that we're hearing all sorts of things with regard to this case, uh, most of which has been unproven. Which brings me back to uh, you, Bill, because this has been an issue since the story first broke, and that is, should it have been reported at all? We had the reporter who broke the story for KMOV on the other day, and she justified her actions, and and quite well, most people thought. What do you think as the journalist in our midst? Well, I heard that interview that you had with her, uh, and I too thought she justified herself well. I mean, I understand the sort of argument that you know, this is the woman's story and it was the woman's story to tell and her former husband is, you know, is I don't know what his motives are, but, uh, but it wasn't his story uh, to tell. So I'm sympathetic to that argument. But on the other hand, uh, I've also talked to the Camel Viva reporter um, and as I understand it, she had talked to the woman uh, extensively. I, I believe those were off-the-record <clears throat> conversations. I mean, one would have to assume that they, would, they wouldn't they would have gone forward with the story unless those conversations substantiated what was said on the tape. Uh, it, you know, if they didn't substantiate what was on the tape, then, it, then the story, sh- they shouldn't have gone forward with the story. But if the off-the-record conversations did substantiate what she said on the tape, then um, I think that the reporter 
act, acted properly and carefully in, in you know, moving ahead, getting a governor's comment. And once the governor had acknowledged on the record the affair, you know, then – you know, then they're in. Then, then I think they. I would definitely have published under those. And, and a lot of people have attacked the ex-husband, saying, "Well, he he brought this story forward because of bad motives." But Bill and I were talking about this last week. I mean, I think a lot of times the people who are leaking information, they're mad about something. Mm-hmm. They're they're they feel scorned or underappreciated or. I got screwed on this. They have their own agenda. Yeah, they got their own agenda. Almost always the best sources uh, have got next to Have a lot of anger. (laughs) Deep throat. Mark Felt was Mm -hmm. mad at Nixon because Nixon had passed him over to be head of the FBI. You know, I also think there's another angle uh, on this. And it's you have a governor who runs on family values, who takes a very high moral stance. Uh, It reminds me of a long time ago with Gary Hart's presidency where there had been rumors that he was having affairs and he dared the press to follow him, and they did, and they found him on a boat having an affair. Uh, so I, I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, don't live in a glass house uh, and take the moral high ground when, in fact, you have your own flaws. I don't know what it is amongst some of these people who have power and influence <laughs> to think that they can get away with stuff. You know, it just uh, sooner or later tends to catch up. Right. And and I'm not saying that this is the case with him because I don't know uh, the governor at all. But, yeah, these people who start thinking, you know, their book Bonfire of the Vanities, they talk about Mm -hmm. these people who think they're the master of the universe and the rules don't apply and the rules always apply. I mean – I have to say that monkey, uh, Gary Hart and monkey business looks like pretty t- tame stuff compared to, you know, to this and to uh, you know the reports in the news about uh, about the president, uh, that the, about the lawyer for the president paying money to a porn star uh, a few week, a few weeks before the election to get her to be remain quiet about an alleged uh, sexual affair. So you know, boy, oh boy, you know. Uh, but Gary Hart's <laughs> pretty tame stuff. But, you know, uh, we have to take a break. He was not rehabilitated, really. But Mark no. Sanford was, the former governor of South Carolina, now in Congress after that uh, problem. Elliot Spitzer is now making his way yeah. back into the mainstream. People like that. Who Bill Clinton. America is a for- forgiving place. Was, Bill Clinton. We can't Bill, leave Bill, him out. Bill Clinton. They, they keep talking about it, but he still keeps <laughs> making a lot of money for his foundation and whatnot. Anyway, let's take that break. We'll come back, continue our conversation with our Legal Roundtable panelists, Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Peter Joy. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our Legal Roundtable panel discussion with Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Peter Joy. Anything uh, you gentlemen wish to add with regard to the Greitens situation? In that case, I'll bring in a, a, a listener who raises an issue that we might want to discuss for a moment. Mark joins us from Potosi. Go ahead, Mark. You're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. I'm curious whether or not there's any possibility of uh, there being a recall election for, uh, against the governor. I never heard this really brought up uh, in any discussions. And I have one more question. Could the uh, husband of the uh, wife, could he bring a lawsuit against the uh, governor for uh, alienation of affection, 
like to hear what you guys uh, say about that. Thank so you. Could there be a recall vote, and uh, could the the uh, wife of this this or the husband of this woman file a lawsuit of some sort? Any thoughts on this, gentlemen? I don't think we have recall in Missouri. I, I don't Do know. We? Yeah, I don't it, know. It would depend that. on whether Missouri has recall. I. I don't, you know, there have other states have recall, you know, like in Cal, famously in California, the recall of Gray Davis. But I don't believe we have that. I think our option is impeachment, and that's, you know, that would have that would start in the Missouri House. Uh, and, and as far as the lawsuit for alienation of affections, I mean, that's not a very favored kind of yeah. cause of action anymore. Uh, and given who the lawyer is for the husband. Uh, if that was a viable option, I suspect that lawsuit would have already been filed. <laughs> One more call on this subject, then we're going to move on. Fred and Glendale, go ahead quickly, please. Okay, Don, I was just wondering why the FBI was involved in, this, in Governor Greitens' indiscretion case. I thought the FBI only dealt with federal law. Is federal law involved in this, well, kind of a domestic situation? Thank you, Fred. So, so what occurred to me, um, Fred's exactly right, but it, it was – so I was thinking if campaign funds were used, that's why I mentioned that. If campaign funds were used inappropriately and not reported, well, then the FBI would be investigating mm-hmm. for violations of federal election or, – or, this is state law, but there would still be a subject to federal mm-hmm. election law. So maybe that's what's going on. But, but the FBI doesn't talk. So it's, good, it's a good question, though. Yeah, and if if there's any kind of way in which a federal crime could have been violated, like using, you know, using the wires, uh, you know, interstate uh, communications to to the woman, or or um, uh, in, if it were to involve something, you know, using the wires to to advance an extortion, um, so it, it's it's plausible, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with that. Just to return to something, um, the previous, I don't know if it was Fred or the one before, this alienation of affection thing. The interesting um, thought there, and, and we're, we're going to talk about the RAM suit later on, but... Um, Hopefully, hope, if we ever get yeah, rid of this subject. <laughs> a lot of times when you, when you sue somebody, uh, you may not win with the lawsuit, but you get to go through a discovery process. And... And when you have a lawsuit, you get to then uh, ask the other side, I want to see all the documents related to this. You can get to ask people questions under oath. That's what got Bill Clinton in trouble. Mm-hmm. He, he lied under oath. And, and lots of people don't want all their documents being produced. And so, so if I tend to agree with Peter. I think if they could have brought a suit, they would have done it just so they can engage in the discovery process. And I think with this RAM suit, that you know the the uh, Judge McGraw uh, denied their motion to dismiss, so um, the NFL had put on hold all the discovery requests, saying, "Well, this case may not even go forward." So now it's going to go forward. So I think you're going to see the NFL maybe coming in and saying, "Well, let's is there any way we can settle this so we can save ourselves mm-hmm. all a bunch of trouble?" But Maybe they don't want someone snooping through all their documents to see what kind of little hidden gems might be in there. Well, as you indicated, and we can dispense with that now, the RAM suit uh, is moving forward. Yeah. The city and the county and other interested parties are uh, licking their chops, I think. Yeah. There's a lot of money out there in the NFL. One other thing concerning the governor, and that is um, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that he's being sued for using an app 
that erases uh, mess- phone messages and what have you. Uh, the the uh, suit alleges the use of automatic communication destroying software by elected officials and government employees is illegal and constitutes an ongoing conspiracy to violate the Missouri Sunshine Law and Missouri State and Local Records Law. That's a quote from their language from the suit. Any comment on that, or should we move along? Oh, I think that's a. I think that's an important issue. I yeah. mean, the idea that the governor is using something that destroys his messages, um, uh, I think, is is fairly is pretty outrageous. You know, whether it actually violates the Sunshine Law, I mean, it 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 requires uh, you know a couple of different uh, a couple of different legal issues. Um, does the governor by himself constitute a government body? He may. Uh, I know lawyers for the Missouri Press Association say he say say that he does. Uh, are communications on his personal uh, cell phone uh, if they relate to government business? Uh, are those communications that should or, or would be then a government record by by a government body? Uh, if uh, one would think that they would be, and that that would be something discoverable, uh, I know that that uh, you know the Attorney General uh, Josh Hawley has has right. got people looking at at this mm-hmm. situation, um, and and Hawley himself has made an interesting just last week he made uh, an interesting proposal for strengthening the Sunshine Law, you know, revisiting. The sunshine, sunshine law to strengthen it, and uh, talked about uh, signing some of his some a specific uh, group of lawyers to defend the sunshine law, lawyers who don't otherwise defend state agencies, so they would be more independent. So all, all those are sort of interesting developments, uh, but the, the governor shouldn't be using. You know these mission impossible destroy the message kind of especially Peter one who ran on on transparency <laughs> right exactly my thought <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know it leaves one just wondering what's he hiding mm-hmm. of course well, in, in addition to the sunshine law they're also saying there's this state and local government Missouri state and local records law which says you cannot destroy records but it, like, as Bill said the question then is are they are they are you, is are these emails in your official capacity. Or is it just personal? And the line's not going to be completely bright. But well, yeah, he's and especially both. if they've been destroyed and there's no record, record of them, there's right. never any way, way to of know. A- answering that question. Of course, the governor has taken a page out of uh, Donald Trump's, Trump's book to say that the stories about this are just more of the liberal press. I think in this case it was the Kansas City Star that first disclosed mm-hmm. that uh, more of the liberal press just trying to get him. Okay, let's let's move on to uh, to some other things. Uh, Dorian Wilson is the young man who was with Michael Brown, you know, shot in August of uh, 2014. Yeah, Dorian Johnson. Right? Uh, Dor- Dor- yes. What did I say? Wilson. But uh, Wilson is the police yeah. officer. Dor- yeah, Dorian Johnson. Thank you for right, correcting that. A uh, federal appeals court will decide whether uh, he uh, Johnson uh, can sue a city police officer and other city officials uh, on the basis of the the Fourth Amendment. That was the is the potential suit. What is the Fourth Amendment uh, part of this? Okay. Well, uh, the Fourth Amendment uh, protects us from um, the government unlawfully seizing us. Uh, you know, and also conducting searches in, in you know, in I mentioned seizure. And here, the issue in Judge Fleisick, uh in the district court decision about this struggled with it uh, was did uh, Dorian Johnson. Um, uh, feel that he was detained uh, by Officer Wilson. Uh, and the key thing there was uh, Wilson said, get on the sidewalk. Um, 
he and Mr. Brown did not get on the sidewalk, and then the police officer backs up his car, almost hits them, you know, showing that he's, like, coming to them. Would somebody feel like the police want me to stay here? I, you know, I, I really am now being detained. And that's a close question. She said that it was sufficient enough to go forward to trial. Uh, there's a legal argument uh, going both ways, and that's what the Court of Appeals will decide. So so there was a panel of the Court of Appeals that's also already ruled on this after after Judge Flessig, and, the, and a two-to-one panel said that, uh, that there was enough evidence that he had been seized that he could claim this Fourth Amendment uh, uh, rights were violated and that the case could go forward. The fact that the entire, the, the entire circuit en banc is, is, has heard, has decided to hear the case I think means that there's at least a substantial number of judges on the A circuit, which is a rather conservative circuit, uh, who, who uh, may not agree with that panel decision. So they may think that this did not amount to a seizure and so therefore the case couldn't go forward. One thing that when you read the when you read the uh, the, the, the court decisions on this, you know, the, at this point the judges have got to they they take the claims of the person suing as being the facts. Right. You know, that mm-hmm. those, we're going to assume the facts, you know, and under those under those facts um, you know, uh, Michael Brown was grabbed by Officer Wilson. Officer Wilson pulled his gun, shot him twice, uh, and then shot him running away. Well, you know, it sort of – and didn't ever resist arrest. Well, you know, that is not what the what the uh, investigation found. So, you know, the judges here are, are taking it on this legal basis, legal fiction really of – Here's the facts according to the motion to dismiss, and so you know, should the case go forward? If the case does ends up going forward, they're they're going to have a lot of trouble uh, winning. We uh, have another uh, judge in action uh, in, in the last couple of weeks. A Cole County judge has tossed an ACLU suit challenging the state's voter ID law. Another failure for that, and people challenging it. The ACLU said the law made it harder for poor people and minorities to cast ballots. Uh, a fellow attorney, uh, Denise Lieberman, here in St. Louis, says lawyers will look for other ways to per- pursue lawsuits against the voter ID law. What, what could they possibly be? Anybody have any ideas? I mean, this has been the, the charge uh, case all along, is that it discriminates against poor people and minorities. Right. Well, well, the, the, this initial challenge has been a challenge to the law as it is written. I think the next level is challenging the law as it's applied. Uh, the law provides for provisional ballots, uh, says that you don't necessarily need a photo ID. You can have other forms of identification. And so if there are some people that go to vote and they have what the law says would be good identification, but then poll workers say you can't cast a ballot, there's another challenge there that will be a challenge as applied. Oh, thank you for clarifying uh, clarifying that for us, uh, Peter Joy. Let's see. What else have we got here? We've got uh, – Bill, you brought up something this morning I didn't know and maybe others didn't as well. And that is the uh, the trouble that the uh, current FBI, acting FBI director, McCabe, uh, is uh, facing now from uh, Donald Trump. Um, this becomes kind of a hometown story in yeah. a sense because he's got a St. Louis connection. So, so McCabe became the acting director uh, after Comey was fired, and of course now we have a, a permanent uh, uh, director, uh, Ray. Uh, but, but Donald Trump has uh, really taken after McCabe uh, in his Twitter uh, Twitter feeds, and apparently, 
you know, after Trump fired Comey, he then met with McCabe you know, when McCabe was about to take over to see, you know, sort of it was like a job interview, whether or not he would take over as acting director. And he asked McCabe um, the question of who'd you vote for in the last election, mm-hmm. you know, Hillary or, or me. Uh, and McCabe's answer to that apparently was he did, he had not voted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the claim that Trump makes about McCabe is that, um, you know, because McCabe's wife was running for, uh, for office in Virginia and because she received uh, financial support from uh, Terry McAuliffe, Hillary Clinton's buddy and former governor of, uh, of, of Virginia, that therefore he was biased and he shouldn't have been involved in any of the investigations uh, of the Hillary Clinton uh, you know, server and emails and, 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 and contributions to the, to the Clinton Foundation. Uh, and, uh, but you know, McCabe had actually not yet been, was not yet the, dep- the deputy director at the time, at that time, at the time, uh, uh, was not deputy director at the time of the contributions. It was only later after she had lost that he uh, was deputy director and was involved in those investigations. Um, but as you as you say, there's the local the local connection is that he's a Washington U law, law graduate. You know, a lot of FBI. Um, Folks uh, and government integrity folks think it's improper for the president to be asking a to, uh, to be asking a civil servant, uh, which is what he was, wh- whom he voted for in in the last uh, election. And it's part of this this Trump and Republican effort to delegitimize the FBI as sort of the um, you know the distraction from um, Mueller's. Uh, investigation which proceeds. Fueled by the Clinton connection to all of this, which right. apparently is something that the president just can't get beyond the, the whole Clinton thing right. as a result of the election. It doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Well, so we, McCabe was at the law school in 93. He graduated. Yeah. I, I was a brand new dean of students at the law school, so I remember him. And he's our second WashU Law head of the uh, FBI because William Webster, what was that, in the late 60s, early 70s? No, later than that. Uh, well, late 70s, Because he was early CIA 80s, before 80s. the FBI. Right. Right. No, no, he? he was CIA after, after the FBI. FBI. Okay. He was FBI director in, in 1980, I think late 70s and early 80s. It, it was, uh, Abscam, it was Reagan. et cetera. It was on Reagan, I it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, he was yeah. definitely the FBI director while Reagan was president. So you two gentlemen from Washington University are very, very proud today to have yeah. this well, association. Well, and, well, Bill's a Wash U Law yeah. alum, and Peter's on, so we're, we're all, all proud. proud. We're all very proud. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I am not, and I'm proud. <laughs> I'm proud, too, by God. Let's take another break, get that out of the way, come back and talk about some other things. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back as we continue our legal roundtable panel discussion with Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Peter Joy, all proud uh, associates of the Washington University School of Law in one way or another. Uh, Let's let's stay with the national picture for a a bit. There are a couple of things going on here that we should talk about. Um, Once again, the Supreme Court will rule on the latest iteration of the Trump uh, travel ban. Uh, hear arguments in the spring, and uh, I guess this is going to finally resolve it one way or the other, wouldn't you think, Peter? 
Uh, well, <laughs> uh, it will resolve this particular travel ban. I suspect that if it goes against what Trump wants, uh, that he'll make a new travel ban. So I, I think he's going to get a travel ban one way or the other. So reading the tea leaves, um, because the because the Supreme Court uh, decided to let the travel ban be enforced while the uh, the case is moving forward. That may mean that there's a majority to support mm -hmm. the third iteration of the of the travel ban, uh, which was struck down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in, a, in a Hawaii case, mm -hmm. and which is still before the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in I guess it's in Maryland um, um, on a religious uh, whether it you know violates the Establishment Clause, the religious freedom part of the of the First Amendment. So the Supreme Court said they would. Look at that issue too. I guess sort of preparing for that uh, that fourth Fourth Circuit case to come to them. So yeah, I think it will uh, resolve it. I think Trump will probably win or mostly win. The case will be argued, I guess, in the spring, decided by July. Yeah. And part of the reason he'll win is because he's added in the countries of Venezuela and North Korea, which are not predominantly Muslim nations. And he also makes – they also make – the government also makes the argument which strengthens their case that the initial travel ban was based upon questions they had about right, the vetting right. process in these countries that were named. Now they say they have done an investigation and that investigation has found that there are serious issues with the vetting of uh, people coming from those countries. And so the president in his role as commander-in-chief – uh, has made the decision that the country needs to be protected from them. Now, you know that that's a hard argument. We may yeah. not believe, we may not entirely believe it, but that is a hard argument to to counter yeah. in the Supreme Court. And what they're going to point to is the things he that candidate Trump said that were kind of, were anti-Muslim. And so I think that becomes not, not that I'm endorsing what he said, not at all. But but I think candidates have a wider range of. Of what they can say and not say, and and then the actual office holder um, restricts himself. Now, tr Trump hasn't restricted himself as much, but he he's certainly restricted himself more than he did as a candidate. I think. Peter, has the inclusion of uh, Venezuela and North Korea really made the mark the only difference between this version that the court is discuss uh, is uh, deliberate will deliberate? in uh, the previous two attempts? Well, I, I, I agree with what Bill said, yeah, that yeah. plus the fact that they claim now that yeah. they have looked into the vetting and <clears throat> there's a problem with vetting. I, I guess the other thing is, uh, although as a candidate, Trump said a lot of anti-Muslim things, he's also tweeted some anti-Muslim things as president. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, so he's not helping the case uh, out very much. But, of course, that seems to be his trademark. Yeah. I think on also there are some exceptions under this latest ban. So uh, for a, you can still apply for individual exceptions. There's a I think for tourism it's different. So there, right. it's not as blanket as it was before. Okay, well, let's move on to other Supreme Court action, which uh, could be extremely important. I think, and that is the issue of gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. The court uh, temporarily blocked a lower court ruling ordering the North Carolina legislature to come up with a revised congressional district map. The current one favors the Republicans. Well, what does uh, the, the fact that the Supreme Court moved here tell us about its attitudes? So, so this is a ca these these are cases that involve 
political gerrymandering. And we haven't yet had a case where the Supreme Court has said, yes, that is a political gerrymander and it violates the Constitution, either equal protection or the First Amendment. They have a case before them uh, that has been argued from Wisconsin. And that case is pending. So um, the North Carolina case was the, the, the court said this is a political gerrymander. And Rick Hassan, who's an expert on election law, says it's the worst political gerrymander uh, that he has seen. But what the Supreme Court is saying, uh, North Carolina, you don't have to redraw these districts yet. yet. Uh, we're going to wait in, until this appeal gets to us. And by that time, you know, they will have decided the Wisconsin case and we'll know whether or not the Supreme Court has been able to find a case where there actually is a politically, political gerrymander. The other political gerrymander issue that's really interesting is in Pennsylvania where a state court ruling on entirely state grounds – I guess we don't – I'm not sure we know yet exactly what the state grounds were, but fair and equal election seems to be – that's in the state constitution seems to be the the gist of it. But the the Pennsylvania state court has found that that that, that congressional gerrymander is is a state unconstitutional political gerrymander and is ordering uh, the legislature to immediately redraw the districts for the upcoming election. Um, by, fe- by February 9th. Really fast. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that that also the, – the, the Republican legislature has very much gerrymandered those congressional districts. And so a redraw would definitely – would seem like at least give the Democrats one more and maybe uh, maybe multiple additional ones. Now, the Republicans have said they will, they will appeal to the Supreme Court. There doesn't seem to be a federal question. But, you know, we all have yeah. to remember Bush versus Gore. Also, there didn't seem to be an – exactly a federal question in that one either. But I think it's unlikely the Supreme Court would get involved. Is, is there a Maryland case as well that is involved in the jury? There is a Maryland case. I think the Supreme Court has already agreed to hear that and maybe – I don't think they've argued it yet, but I'm not 100 percent sure. The difference between that and the Wisconsin case is I believe the Maryland case is a first amem- is, is based on the First Amendment. There's the political gerrymander favoring Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that uh, that violates uh, you know the First Amendment rights of voters, and of course we have political gerrymanders real close to home, right across the across the river in Illinois. They've had pretty effective Democratic gerrymanders for a long time. Where could the uh, the Supreme Court take us on the issue of gerrymandering? I mean, well, I think because that, these that, are state issues, are they not? It's well, if you but like Bill said, if you if it affects my First Amendment right, if I am packed in. With a bunch of Democrats, even though that's not the natural thing, it undermines my my voice in the process. And and but part of the challenge the Supreme Court has said, you know, during during this case is, well, how do we? There's no bright line rule we, we can do, so we don't. They they don't want a whole bunch of cases coming to them every time a, a state re, does redistricting. They don't want it in front of the Supreme Court, and I think that's one of the things they're struggling with. How do we? We know we know what is and what isn't, but how do we give an easy to follow rule so we're not cluttered with all these cases and the federal courts are not cluttered? We don't want that. And did you want to say something? No, I, I just wanted to, to sort of point out something that Bill said, which is the Pennsylvania case is much different than these others because it was decided solely on state law right. grounds, and so unless the court says that the state law conflicts with the U.S. Constitution, the Pennsylvania case right. stands. The, the one way in which the, I think that the, the people would try to claim it violates the U.S. Constitution is that, uh, that, the, that, that the Constitution 
requires legislatures to grow, to draw districts, uh, but the Supreme Court has not seemed to be disposed to agree with that in past cases from like Arizona. So I think there, I think that I, I think that will probably go ahead in Pennsylvania and make make quite a bit of difference. But I think in North Carolina, the districts will not be redrawn before. Before the, before the Wisconsin election. cases. But whatever the Supreme Court does or doesn't do, we are not likely to come up with a system that will apply the same way in all 50 states, will we? No. I mean, there are some states that have avoided this issue largely with uh, bipartisan commissions, commissions that have drawn it up. Yeah, right. but, but I don't see the Supreme Court forcing states to adopt a particular remedy. But but there could be a constitutional rule, you know, just like one man, one vote, one person, one vote, is a constitutional rule that all reapportionment has to comply with. And so, you know, uh, if the Supreme Court says that the Equal Protection Clause of the First Amendment uh, Im- imposes a constitutional rule of no politically political gerrymanders, and they can describe what you know. Tell courts, you know, uh, you know, uh, rules they can apply to determine when is there a political mm-hmm. gerrymander. Uh, you know, that could be a constitutional rule that all legislatures have to comply with, although it would still be in their hands to actually set up the process for drawing the districts. We talk about these things as as we expect everybody to understand what we're talking about. (laughs) Peter, maybe if I can turn to you um, to to explain what gerrymandering is and how it influences elections. Okay. Well, uh, gerrymandering uh, in in its... uh, named after the strange shapes that some districts end up being to try to uh, either pack a lot of one party into one particular district rather than having them spread out uh, or drawing boundary lines where you're picking up in a district uh, voters of a particular party. So that's why you, you can look at various state maps and you see very strange shapes because it's almost identifying all the Democratic or all the Republican voters in a district or it's packing them all in to one district where if they were evenly dispersed, they might comprise two or three districts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's trying to get a political advantage by – as I said, either packing the voters in so that they're not getting their fair representation like in, in maybe in Pennsylvania yeah. or drawing the districts in strange shapes that occurs so almost it's, in every it's state. It's the packing that, like you said, are cracking where they get it. Oh, right. They divide right. them up. And then – and so you have situations – I think Pennsylvania is like this. It was you know, basically 50-50 in the presidential election. But uh, the Republicans have what, like two-thirds of the House – the seats because yep. of the way they've drawn it, and, and now because of the computers, uh, yeah. the, you know, lawyers and and politicos can very carefully figure out how do we maximize our party's control of you know state legislative elections, congressional elections. Uh, and they can do it effectively, like in the Wisconsin case before the Supreme Court. I think it. Uh, I think they showed that Democrats could win fifty nine percent of the vote in, in the in the election and still not get a majority of the seats. Mm-hmm. And we should point out the advantage is a ten year advantage because it only yeah. happens every ten years following and, and the, the Supreme census. Court said, has said you can't gerrymander for because of race, but you can you know you can draw a little finger out of your district. Because the incumbent lives there, and you want to keep them there, and and that goes on all the time. So, 
this will this would be new ground if they come in and say you can't do it for political purposes. And those states where they are using commissions, it's working out pretty well, from what I've I've read and understood. I, I mean, I I think people would say they're mixed results. Yeah. There are some commissions that work better than others. Uh, in some of the states that have had commissions where they have seemed to work, a different political party gets in power and they want to dismantle the commission because they want to get that advantage. Uh, so there's some controversy. But what but, we need is an app. Something, I mean, and, and I'm saying that as a joke, but not really. We need a computer program that says, here are the, here are the factors that are important. We want this and this, and take the people out of it. Hmm. You sure there's not an app for it already? There probably it's, is an app, right. Yeah. I don't Seems, know if we want to take the people out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another issue we can get to as uh, time winds down, and that is the issue of, uh, of juvenile defendants. Uh, the uh, Missouri General Assembly is just... Uh, looking at legislation right now, which would increase the age in which juveniles can be uh, tried as adults from 17 to 18. Um, good idea, Peter? The criminal the criminal justice is in your belly? Yeah, I, I think it's a very good idea. Uh, that's the way it used to be in most jurisdictions before um, states started lowering the age. Um, you can still have somebody who's younger be certified as an adult. Mm -hmm. uh, this just says that, in general, 18 is a cutoff point. And I think that's based a lot on what neuroscience tells us about how brains develop. Uh, you know, even – and there'll be arguments about, well, can we even say between 17 and 18, is there much of a difference? Mm -hmm. Uh, but there is some difference, and I think it's a good move. The brain not fully developed, uh, not even at 18. It's That's a correct. few years after that. But That's there are certain parts of the brain that are definitely not developed, <laughs> and that uh, can cause some real problems. So it's the same, that's the same rationale uh, that the Missouri Supreme Court first and then later the U.S. Supreme Court used to say that we shouldn't have uh, the death penalty for juveniles and that juveniles should not be uh, uh, people who commit murders while juveniles shouldn't be able to be sentenced to life in prison without parole. That, that, that's, that's before the Supreme Court. That's, that's already, that, already, already been decided. The Supreme Court has ruled both those things. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'll see how that uh, works out. I think this has been in front of the Missouri legislature in the past. And, uh, right. It just and we're is one just of five, I think, five states mm -hmm. that doesn't have this legislation. Okay. Time winding down. And I do want to uh, make some mention of uh, the loss we experienced this month of Frankie Freeman. Um, thoughts about Frankie Freeman, gentlemen? Um, she was a, a civil rights icon, needless to say, and very, very influential in civil rights legislation over the years. Bill, I'll start with you. Uh, well, she certainly was, and she was, um, I believe she was the first woman to be appointed to the Civil, uh, civil Rights, rights Commission. Rights Commission. Uh, 1964, she served on that, I think, until 1979, was a very important voice there. I mean, her life shows the difficulties. Uh, you know, she graduated from, I think, Hampton Roads and had trouble getting in, getting a law school that would accept, uh, right. you know, the credits. Eventually, she got her law degree from Howard. She won a big housing discrimination case in St. Louis in 1952, saying segregation, you know, this is pre-Brown versus Board of Education saying that segregation of the housing, public housing, was um, unconstitutional. Uh, she um, later worked with uh, Chancellor Danforth on the commissions that uh, continued, found a settlement to the St. Louis School desegregation case and continued that 
uh, desegregation plan into the indefinite future it is still with us now, uh, even if it's uh, in a smaller version and possibly phasing out in the future. So that was an, that was an enormous uh, contribution. I believe also she and Danforth had made the recommendation that uh, there that temporarily, and I think that time's coming to an end, there be a separate body to run the St. Louis Public Schools to improve those schools. They've improved, and I think it looks like now they're going to be turned back over. So she's been an enormous an inspirational force in civil rights. And Mark, another connection to Washington University. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know her, but I just love those pictures of her and Dr. Danforth together. They're, and they just seem to so genuinely enjoy each other. Yeah. And, um, and just two really nice people doing really important things and, and making the world a better place. It's just really, it, make, it gives you a good feeling when you see that. And Peter, uh, she died at the age of 101, was this Sharp as a tack right up until the end from what we all understand of her. What are your thoughts about Frank Freeman? Uh, you know, I, I just want to mm-hmm. echo what's been said. Uh, a true inspiration, yeah, and I think someone who also uh, inspired quite a number of law students and right. young lawyers throughout her career um, to, to do better uh, and to work for justice. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have on our website something I would like to point people to and have done it on occasion. Uh, we were talking about Frankie Freeman the other day with uh, some associates over the years, including Percy Green, a longtime civil rights activist. We have a wonderful piece of tape on the website of a conversation between Frankie Freeman and Percy Green talking about the rule of law versus civil disobedience. We know what side Percy was on. He was very influential in the 60s, needless to say. And we know what side she was on as well. And it's, uh, I recommend that hardly. I recommend that hardly. Any final thoughts? We have 10 seconds left. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go look at that, uh, that at, at that conversation because I've talked to yeah. them both and I'd love to hear yeah. that debate. Well, there it is. You'll find it at stlpublicradio.org. It's on the, on the homepage there, I believe. Still, if not, go to the St. Louis on the Air uh, tab, if you will. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Bill Freivogel, thank you for being with us. Peter Joy, thank you. great to see you again. Thanks for being with us. And Mark Smith, wonderful to have you with us as well. That's going to do it for today. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.